Dear friends in Jesus Christ, I believe that we are in the middle of a spiritual battle. We might not even be aware of it, but it's true though. It's really true. What's going on here? Here we are in the middle. On one side, we have Satan himself. We have all the other evil angels. We have the sinful world in which we live, and we have our own sinful natures within us. And all of that is trying to get us to either minimize Jesus or to flat out reject Jesus. Who is on the other side? On the other side, we have God the Holy Spirit. He is working through word and sacrament, and he is trying to pull us to put Jesus first in our lives. What is the devil telling us? The devil is saying, oh, as long as Jesus is kind of up there near the top somewhere, that'll be fine. He doesn't have to be first. You can put other things before him, and that will be okay. It kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Aren't we doing a lot better than most other people out in the world? Well, we are, but is that what the Bible says, though? The Bible says that Jesus, because of who he is, because of what he did, he put you and I first. Coming down from heaven, suffering all that he did, he did that all for you and me. So now, as his followers, he's calling us to put him first. I think we need a couple basic reminders to have like in front of us all the time. I should have put this information on a little card and given each one of you a copy of it. Here's what I'm talking about. Let's never forget we all do wrong and we are helpless to save ourselves. A lot of people out in the world, they kind of begin to get the idea, well, yeah, sure, I've done some things wrong, but I'm not really that bad, and I think somehow God will accept me. It's so easy to roll over into that position. We need to keep remembering we've all done wrong, and we are helpless to save ourselves. And then we need to keep remembering Jesus is God, and he is the only way to heaven. Again, people want to say, well, maybe there's some kind of a part of God in him, but he's not the fullness of God in human flesh, as the Bible teaches. Somehow he's less than that. Somehow, oh yeah, he did a great thing, but somehow I need to add my great things to his great thing in order to get to heaven. It's so easy to compromise the truth. God never wants us to do that. So when we stay in the word, when we put Jesus first, when we keep remembering these fundamental things, it's gonna be a great blessing to us now and forever. May God help us in such ways. Well, today, we are focusing on Jesus' transfiguration. So he goes from looking like an ordinary man to looking like, we could say, the very Son of God. As we go through the sermon today, let us be encouraged to keep Jesus first, and also let us be encouraged to listen to him. That's part of putting him first, is then to listen to him. We're going to come more to that in today's sermon. Coming to the setting here, we find ourselves in Mark chapter 9, picking up in verse 2. The Bible says, six days later. So we might say, what happened six days earlier? Well, six days earlier, Jesus talked about his upcoming 
death, and resurrection. Now, this had to be such a shocker to his disciples to hear about this. Jesus already knew this was coming. So he shares this information six days earlier. And then six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. What can we say about Peter, James, and John? Well, we could say that they were Jesus' best students. Doesn't that sound odd to say that? They were disciples. What is a disciple? A disciple is a follower. And why are people following? They are following so that they can learn. Jesus is their Lord. He is their master. He is their teacher. So these three men, they were his best students. Sometimes we say they were his inner circle. So we think of the three, we expand to the 12, we expand to the 72. So Jesus had these various people that were important to him. When we think about Peter, James, and John, they were there when Jesus did some really important things. For example, only they were there when Jesus raised the little girl back to life. Here she is, she has died. The people were laughing at Jesus saying that she was not really dead, and then he raised her to life. Also, when Jesus described the destruction of the temple, the temple so beautiful, so solid, so gold-plated, it was wonderful in every way, and Jesus told them, not a stone will be left on another. When he said those things, Peter, James, and John were there. When Jesus was transfigured, it was only those three men. And then when Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, who did he take with him? Peter, James, and John. When we think about the mountain here, in a way it doesn't really matter, but we know that six days earlier, they were in Caesarea Philippi. If you look at the map there, that's the red arrow on the map pointing to Caesarea Philippi. Some people say, well, maybe they went up on Mount Tabor. Maybe they went up on Mount Hermon. But notice in the text, though, it does say that they went up on a high mountain. It almost has to be Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is about 9,200 feet. Mount Tabor is only about 1,000 feet. So the high mountain would certainly be Mount Hermon. And they were close by anyway. So we don't really know for certain. Does it matter? It doesn't. We're not going to make a pilgrimage to the top of Mount Hermon. But maybe the Bible doesn't identify it for that reason. It's not important to go to the top of Mount Hermon. It's important to know Jesus is the Son of God in human flesh. And then coming to the transfiguration, the Bible says Jesus was transfigured before them. What does that mean? His garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. When we think about Jesus, I want to go to this Old Testament prophecy written by Isaiah, and it tells us how Jesus would be an ordinary-looking man. He wrote, He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. In other words, Isaiah was saying, when the Messiah comes on the scene, Prior to his transfiguration, he's going to look like an ordinary guy. That's what he was trying to tell us. 
However, though, when we think about our figure, when we hear the word figure, we can think about our own physical shape, but we can also think about our own physical appearance. So Jesus' shape was not changed, but his appearance was changed. What does the Bible tell us? His appearance became extraordinary. It went from something ordinary to something extraordinary. It was shocking. So the Bible is telling us that his clothes became super brilliant. They became exceedingly white. Now, in our world today, we can make things that are pretty white in color. They probably weren't able to do that a long time ago. So to see something that was just sparkling white, that was something unknown to them at that time. As the Bible says, exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. So everything went from plain to brilliant immediately. And then if we look over in Matthew regarding the transfiguration, Matthew wrote that Jesus' face began to shine like the sun. So you have to see the contrast, so ordinary and then so brilliant all of a sudden. And then we come to the three heavenly visitors. Elijah appeared to Peter, James, and John, along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. What can we say about these two men? Well, first of all, thinking about Moses, remember, he's the one who went up on Mount Sinai and received the law from God Almighty. So with the law, the law is a wonderful thing. We should seek to follow the law to honor our great God. What is the problem? None of us can keep it perfectly. We all fall short. The law shows us that we are sinners. The law shows us that we desperately need the Son of God, who is the Lamb of God, and who has taken away the sin of the world. What about Elijah? Why did he appear? We could say that Elijah, he was the representative of all of the Old Testament prophets. When we think about the Old Testament prophets, what were they writing about? They were writing about sin. They were writing about the promised Messiah. And they were writing about the work that he would do to take away the sin of the world. So we have these really two key men appearing and I believe they appeared in order to encourage Jesus. Now, when we think about Jesus, keep in mind, he is both the Son of God, but he is also the Son of Man. According to the Son of God, he needs no encouragement. According to the Son of Man, imagine if somebody told us in a short time, you're going to be arrested you're going to be beaten within an inch of your life, and then you're going to be nailed to a cross. I mean, as human beings, that would overwhelm us, wouldn't it, to know that? Jesus knew that. He knew what was coming. So I think they came so that according to his human nature, they could give, give him some great encouragement as he was anticipating the great suffering that he would endure and the death that he would die when he laid down his life after he completed his saving work. Then we come to the reaction of Peter. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, or we might say three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. 
For Peter did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. What can we say here? I think initially there was enjoyment. Peter is saying, hey, this is great. Jesus, Moses, Elijah, I want this to continue. A way to continue it would be for each one of them to have a place where they can hang out. Maybe they can sleep overnight. I'm going to do a tent for each one of them so I can continue this whole situation. That's the idea of making a shelter for them. But then we see an extraordinary thing here. If we think about it, Peter knows that the one man is Moses and he knows that the other man is Elijah. How is that? If we think about what Paul wrote there in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I think it can be helpful right here. Paul wrote, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. I think what they were experiencing there was a glimpse of heaven. Now, we could say in a sense, I mean, think about the high mountain. Was it that heaven came down to the top of the mountain, or was it in a sense that the top of the mountain like ascended into heaven for a few moments? Either way, I think God is helping us understand that when we are finally with God forever, we are going to know who people are. Isn't that going to be such an awesome thing? We're going to see people in a way, they're going to be strangers, people we've never met, and yet we're going to immediately know who they are, and amazingly, they're going to know who we are. So, can you imagine Moses walking up to you and calling you by name, even though you never met him? Won't that be such an awesome thing? God wants us to know that he has amazing things waiting for us in eternity, and the only way to get there is through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us never forget that. And then, though, after that, we see that they became terrified. How do we put that all together? Try to imagine being Peter, James, or John. So you're up on the mountain, and then you see Jesus transfigured, that had to be overwhelming. Like at first, immediately you're amazed, but then you're like, wait a minute, he's shining like the sun, and now we have Moses and Elijah, and they're trying to put that all together. And I think because of all of that, because how overwhelming it must have been, then they became terrified. And then the Bible tells us about the voice of the Father. Then a cloud formed overshadowing them. Try to imagine it like this. Imagine you're outside and it's a perfectly sunny day. You have the fullness of the sun, but then very quickly this large black cloud appears and it moves right over you. And boy, did it get dark quickly with this large black cloud. I think that's what they experienced here. Then a cloud formed overshadowing them and a voice came out of the cloud this is my beloved son, listen to him. So when Jesus, right after he was baptized, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit by God the Father, and then God the Father said, 
This is my beloved son. Now we have the addition here. So we have the voice of God the Father. We have the command. And he said, listen to him. Listen to him. What does that mean? We could break it down like this. That means to hear with our ears wide open. Paying attention in a sense. So to pay attention would mean to focus on something, to think about it. Now here at Bethlehem, it's a challenge, isn't it? You can look this way, you can focus this way, or you can maybe look outside and see some deer and enjoy the scenery outside. So it's a bit of a challenge, so I have to try to keep your attention here. And I'm so thankful that you're awake and that you're looking this way. Hey, that's a blessing for me and also for you. But then, what else does it mean to listen? So to hear, to pay attention, to obey. So we are hearing, and then we are understanding, and then we are putting the Word of God into practice. Now, is that how we are saved? By no means. We are saved because of the perfect work of Jesus, but when we know him, now we want to hear him. We want to understand what he's talking about. We want to put it into practice as a way to honor our great God who gave everything for us and for our salvation. And then we come to the abrupt ending. All at once, they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. What could we say? God the Father wanted to give a particular message to Peter, James, and John what is that message? The message was, Jesus is God, therefore listen to him. That was the message, so it didn't need to get prolonged. They didn't need to stay overnight. It didn't have to be a lengthy kind of a thing, but they got the message, and just like that, it ended. God does that sometimes, doesn't he? He allows things into our lives and sometimes they can be long and involved, other times they can be brief. But God permits things for a reason. He wants us to take them in, he wants us to think about them, he wants us to get the message, to not forget his message, and then we can move on. It doesn't have to be prolonged. And then finally we come to the command at the end here. The Bible says, as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Jesus had more teaching to do. Jesus had yet to be arrested and beaten and crucified. Then he had to receive the sin of the world upon him. Then he had to receive the punishment of God the Father upon him. Once all of that was done, he laid down his life. Everyone was in despair. But then on the third day, God raised him to life. Jesus wanted to complete his mission without all these extra people asking and wondering about who he is. He knows who he is. Now Peter, James, and John are certain of who he is, and now he can complete his work. However, though, once that work was completed, 
then the idea is, hey, go and tell the entire world Jesus is the very Son of God in human flesh. He is the one sent by God the Father. He is the one who lived for us. He is the one who took away our sins. He is the only way to heaven. They began to do that, we could say, on the day of Pentecost especially and going forward. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and now they took that message to the world. Hey, what about us? Hey, we have that same Holy Spirit. Jesus has completed his work. What should we be doing? We should be telling the whole world who Jesus is, what he has done for all of us, and then we should be calling them to repent and believe. Let us pray. Dear Holy Spirit, impact us with the full force of who Jesus is, the Son of God in human flesh. And then may you move each of us and even many others to faithfully hear him, pay attention to him, and obey him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.